Good evening, listeners. It is Sunday, September 11th, 2016, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Gian Kamvar. And I'm Kristen Finch. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at Oregon State and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration where you can find out about our upcoming guests and links to our Facebook and Twitter pages. And Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent uh, Oregon State University or this station. So tonight we are joined by Andres Lazaro Lopez, and he's a PhD in applied anthropology. So uh, Andres, why don't you go, go ahead and say hello? Hello. Good evening. How's it going? <laughs> it's going well. So, um, what what department are you in? Or I we know what department you're in. Applied anthropology. Uh, who's your major advisor? I work with Marta Maria Madonado and Josefina Carpena Mendez. And uh, so, applied anthropology is a large field. Um, what do you do? What's your research in? So I'm. I'm interested in how people use religion and spirituality uh, to negotiate, consent to, and resolve conflicts around inequalities, particularly at and around work. So religion within work? Yeah, religion and spirituality at work. (laughs) In in other words, sort of um, how do people reconcile themselves to inequality? So it's it's not like... like, uh, studying people that have chapels at their works or people that work in a, min- in a monastery or anything like that. Correct, correct. It's, it's more about um, the everyday religious and spiritual practices um, that are used to make sense of um, our occupations and work. And so do you have an example about uh, how religion or spirituality might enter in the workplace situation? Well, it's actually kind of funny. I was thinking about it before. Um, I got here this evening and I was a real estate agent for four years in between undergrad and graduate school. And I remember this really distinct moment when, when I thought to myself that, oh my goodness, I cannot be a realtor for the rest of my life because I don't want my life to be about selling things to people. <laughs> and, um, and I didn't, I, I don't know if I understood that to be religious or spiritual sort of conflict um, at that moment, but it definitely has made more sense as the years have gone by. There was this particular instance when I was um, selling commercial real estate space to a group of uh, skateboard designers, these two men from Colorado, and they were really professional and, and cool with me, I guess, but um, sort of the end of the of our inner or our sort of gathering, they were like, oh, we want to go to the strip club and you know, we want you to take us around Portland. And, and I just remember <laughs> feeling this like, oh, all this extra service and work I had to do to sell something um, that compromised my values, that made me uncomfortable, that made me sort of feel that I wasn't really valued and what I was doing. Um, So I think oftentimes uh, around the work that we do and in the workplaces that we're in, um, people bring religious and spiritual commitments to them. And they also at times 
um, struggle with uh, the meaning of their work in religious and spiritual terms. So there's a, a big connection between the two, and it's very understudied. And and when you say when you say when uh, people are religious and spiritual, do you necessarily mean that they subscribe to a major religion or even a minor one, or even say that they are religious? That's a great question. So what I'm really interested in is everyday religion. Um, it's sort of a new way of studying religion in the last 20 years um, that scholars have been implementing. Um, but it really focuses on people's definitions and descriptions of their beliefs and practices um, that may be borrowed from some religious institutions, whether they grew up in a certain faith tradition um, or maybe just experienced at an, a Zen Buddhist meditation group that they had earlier today that a friend brought them to or or what have you. Um, so the focus is really on how people use religion and spirituality and how they define those things and not how an institution might define them. All right. So I want to skip back to the past and hear about how you really got into this in the first place. And maybe that. So does that start uh, before undergraduate college for you? <laughs> Well, I think at, at an early age, I, I had ver two very masculine brothers growing up, <laughs> and um, and I and I knew that I was um, I knew that I was queer, and somehow at a young age, I really wasn't sure what that meant or what that would look like in my future. Um, but I, I learned pretty quickly the way that my brothers behaved around our parents, as opposed to their friends, as opposed to the women in their lives, um, and that masculinity and sexuality were very important. Um, in, in those different contexts and were sort of played on on different ways. And so I think for some reason at a young age, there was a, a very clear awakening in me and understanding that something was wrong here or that something didn't really quite make sense. Um, the way that my brothers portrayed themselves and um, the way that sexuality was portrayed to me at a young age. Um, so I think I was always sort of inspired by masculinity and sexuality um, in some way at an early age. And so did... Did you somehow feel that maybe they weren't um, showing or displaying their truth by having to be in these situations where they have to kind of change the way that they're behaving around certain groups? I think at a young age I did. I think I thought they were being unauthentic or they weren't being their real selves. Is, is there a way to describe uh, this kind of this kind of thing where you know when you when you talk with one person you act a certain way and you talk with another person in a completely different group you act a very different way uh, is there is there a term for this that we can use yeah so uh, many quality scholars use the term code switching um, to make sense of um, how people from oppressed populations use language and performances different in different contexts to communicate different things. Um, so I guess, yeah, in some way I sort of learned about code switching very young and um, didn't have the language to, you know, quite understand that or knowledge to understand that. But um, I definitely felt it in some way at a young age. Yeah. So feeling differently from your brothers, perhaps, did it uh, did you have a tendency also to code switch perhaps like around them? You were kind of different than the way you'd be around your friends. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. I don't I don't I think I. Um, well, of course, I listened to salsa music and Motown because of my parents' <laughs> influence on me. And because it's great. <laughs> but besides that, rap was pretty much the only thing that uh, 
I would listen to. And, and I think it has a very strong correlation with my brothers and their influences on me. Right. Okay. And then, so how did that lead you uh, to end up studying sociology in undergrad? Well, so originally I went to Xavier University in Cincinnati, Ohio to study psychology. Um, I went to a Jesuit high school here in Portland, Oregon, and I wanted to continue my education in the Jesuit tradition. And they had a great psych program. So, and I wanted to go far away from the West Coast because <laughs> I wanted to experience something completely different, um, which I did. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, psychology was not for me. And <laughs> I learned very quickly after taking Psych 101 that I was not interested so much in the individual as I was in groups and um, larger populations. So I took Introduction to Sociology and I was hooked. I, I thought, you can major in this. <laughs> you know, I was sort of blown away, and um, but it, it was really exciting to me. It had kind of a personal impact because uh, you finally were able to get the language uh, to describe what you've been experiencing your whole life. Absolutely. I, I often say that sociology saved my life <laughs> <laughs> because um, it definitely um, provided me with an understanding of the world in ways that I, I think was already there, but I wasn't able to um, share that with people or to disseminate my knowledge, if you will. <laughs> we like that. <laughs> so once you had the, I guess, the terminology for for what you were experiencing and kind of this foundation and being really interested in this field, uh, what what did you do during undergrad that really, uh, or what was your main project? So um, at Xavier University, if you study sociology, you have to write a senior thesis um, type project. And I was sort of trying to figure out what I wanted to study. I remember this evening that I was, I was with a dear friend of mine, and we were both sort of reading papers and talking big ideas. And, <clears throat> and I read a piece on masculinity uh, by Dr. Sharon Bird, and it just sort of ignited me, and, and I got so excited, and I remember telling my friend, um, my friend Lauren, I, I said to her, remind me that I, I have to spend my life contributing to this in some way, you know, in, in 10, 15 years when we're doing something else, and <laughs> remind me of this moment tonight at this coffee shop. Um, so that led me to do a bachelor's uh, sort of project on how... Um, college age men viewed their masculinity and whether or not they they felt restricted by masculinity in some way and you were and this was a college project where you actually did interview uh college age men about masculinity um and so you had you went to a four-year undergrad you got your you got your degree in sociology and you had research under your belt uh through this project and uh but we know that you were a realtor after undergrad. So what, what, what kind of led to that? Well, to be honest, I really needed to go home. I needed to come back to the West Coast after being in Ohio for four years. Um, and also, I really sort of needed to grow up a little bit. I knew that I wanted an advanced degree in sociology, but I wasn't quite ready for that. I needed to make some money and live a little bit and I don't know, sort of have a little bit more power than I think I didn't feel so much in when I was getting my undergrad. And so, uh, I guess, you know, what, what kind of jobs did you have? Was it only realty? 
Well, actually, I worked as an admissions officer in a university at first. And <laughs> um, and the reason why I even got into real estate is because most of my family uh, is in finance. And um, my mother has um, sort of taught a lot of my family how to do the business and um, to be self-employed. And so it was something that was sort of I resisted in many ways because I wanted advanced degrees and I wanted to go to school. Uh, but at the same time, it was sort of easy to fall into um, because I sort of was in diapers and escrow, you know, at, at a very <laughs> young age. So that wasn't hard for me, I think, to to pick up. Cool, cool. So did you then, so while you were doing your real estate job, did you go into, how long did you do that? And when did you start your master's? So the whole time, actually, that I did take the time off, my intention was to go back to school right away. So I um, applied for graduate school three times, actually, in between um, my bachelor's and my master's. And it was very hard because I'm, I'm a first-generation bachelor's degree in my family, and I didn't really have an understanding of how graduate school worked. Um, my undergraduate advisor told me that I'd be better suited for community college. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Um, at a, so that really sort of threw me off. I didn't know what, um, which way to go. I just knew that I wanted a PhD and, and that's what I wanted to do. So third try was a charm and, and, and luckily I, I got into a good program. And, and so you were able to, you were able to get into a program, uh, I guess with virtually very little support. Wow. Exactly. And so, uh, so where, where did you do your master's? So I went to the University of Missouri in Kansas City. Um, <clears throat> and I was really lucky, actually, to be at UMKC uh, because I also got to work at United Way of Greater Kansas City while I was there. So I really I began my whole graduate process while also doing research work for United Way um, outside of the academy, right? So it was a really great pairing of professional research and academic research. And uh, UMKC was was really wonderful, too, because there was masculinity scholars there and there was religious studies scholars there. Um, and it was a fairly inter interdisciplinary program. So it was something that I was excited about, yet focused in sociology. So and, what what uh, what groundwork did you lay there? So at that point, I, I knew I wanted to study masculinity, but I really didn't know in what context or what that really meant. I was still, you know, really fresh to this process, really green, I guess um, you could say. But I decided to study um, men's, men's movements or men's ministries um, because of, really honestly, I think because of my brother, because he became an evangelical and um, had a different belief system in a way that we that I, we did not share growing up, and it was very confusing to me as to why he would think the things he did and behave the way he did. So, um, so I was I, w I was really really excited to have the opportunity to study a group of men um, that maybe sort of were similar to my brother and and how he thought and and ask bigger questions, sociological questions about masculinity and religion and inequality. And so that's when really those two subjects kind of became intertwined for you is when your your favorite topic, masculinity, kind of met up with this like need or this want for you to kind of get back into understanding why and how people like are also religious in their life. Absolutely. It was it was the. Uh... I was hooked, I, I guess, after that. <laughs> and it's, it's, not, it's not only that, but it's also tying, uh, you know, at 
large aspects of your life. I mean, because we've met, we mentioned this early in the show, but we didn't really highlight this. But uh, uh, you are you are a Christian. I am a Catholic. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so the so you so you religion is a large part of your life, and you know this is this is intertwining, uh, you know, something that's fascinated you for a long time, and something that's been part of you for a long time. Uh, and so you you were able to do your research in this and your masters at UMKC. Uh, 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 researching men's ministries, and so um, how did this lead you to uh, to a PhD, or uh, did you did you take time off after this, or did you go directly into a PhD after this? I did. I I, I knew that I would never get into a PhD program without having a strong master's degree and some experience under my belt. Um, so I actually took three years to get my master's, and then I applied to a bunch of programs. And I was really excited that I actually got accepted into Iowa State uh, because I got to work with Dr. Sharon Bird, who was the same individual whose article I read when I was an undergrad that oh, sort of led me to this. That's fantastic. So you read you read this this mind blowing article in undergrad, and you got to work with this person. Absolutely. That that sounds that sounds like one of the best things that could happen. Kind of like a dream come true. <laughs> it was it was pretty crazy and. I was very lucky. Um, Dr. Bird was was such a great mentor to me and and got me involved in national feminist feminist networks very quickly in my career and um, really pushed me and challenged me to make better sense of where my contribution would be. So I wasn't thrilled about moving to Iowa, I should say that. (laughs) Back to the Midwest again. (laughs) And I think a lot of people were confused as to why I would go there. Um, but I was, the advice I was given was go, go with mentorship, go with the right mentorship because that's, what's going to get you where you need to be. So that's why I made that decision. But, um, at this point, but at this point, you're doing your PhD here at Oregon State with a different advisor. So, I, I guess I want to. Um, what happened? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, so my advisor, uh, Marta Maria Maldonado, who I was, she was also on my committee at Iowa State, um, and um, studies work inequalities and in, uh, race and uh, spatial racialized inequalities and. She she and I were very close and, and and had a very close relationship and um, where I didn't have as much of a personal relationship with my other advisor and and being in Iowa was a really hard place for me it was very oppressive in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and um, so I had a very close connection uh, with my advisor and um, it just sort of made sense that she would be the one leading me uh, to the finish line. Um, because we did spend a lot of time together, and 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 really, really both study work and inequality, so it really wasn't that big of a of a switch. <laughs> um, I was also really interested in in focusing on Latinos specifically, so that mm-hmm. was a big part of um, why I chose to make the switch. And um, and then my advisor, Dr. Malinado, actually got a position here at Oregon State. She had an interview just a few weeks actually after I switched with her, and um, about eight months later, she. Wow. You know, got the offer to come here. And you were like, yes, let's go back to the West Coast. <laughs> you know, it's really funny. So um, even though I'm from Los Angeles, but I, I came of age in Portland. And, you know, when you come to Oregon, whatever age you move here, 
if you're not from here, you sort of have to pick Oregon or Oregon State, right? And, and I wasn't really so obsessed with making that decision uh, quite early, but I did, and I chose the Beavers. And I, so I was an Oregon State fan, and I have been for <laughs> I have been for about ten years. So you can imagine me watching Oregon State football games at one in the morning in the Midwest um, because of the time difference, and being a fan for so many years to have my advisor tell me out of all the places in the country that she got a job at Oregon State. I was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely the hand of God and those sort of things. You know, it was no coincidence for me. Definitely sounds like you have a, you have a directed, you've definitely been focused in your path and it's been, it's been led by your personality, which I think is really cool. Awesome. And you've really Thank been you. following your, your drummer, I yeah. guess. And you, know, and you know exactly what you need. That's fantastic. That's so nice of you to say. Thank you. <laughs> and so, so, uh, now that you're now that you're here at Oregon State, um, in in the timeline here, <laughs> uh, why, don't, why don't we go ahead and uh, revisit what your research here is? Right. So, I think uh, an easy way to sort of boil it down is is really two questions. Um, one, how does religion and spirituality shape work, and vice versa? Um, and two, what do identities and inequalities have to do with this? So the really, I guess I'll I'll just begin. I'll go right into this. Sure. Right? <laughs> so Fantastic. the first yeah. one, how religion and spirituality uh, shape work, um, with this new framework of studying lived religion and everyday religion, uh, scholars are no longer privileging institutions as the place where religion and spirituality exists. Um, in the workplace, we know um, that it is that work is shaped by all sorts of different things, and that inequalities in the workplace um, change people's experiences. Uh, if you're a man or a woman, if you're a person of color, if you're a queer person, if the occupation is male-dominated versus female-dominated, if you know, depending on the work environment and the culture of that workplace, right? Sort of, there's all different experiences that exist within those workplaces. Um, and now more and more scholars are trying to are trying to make sense of how religion and spirituality actually influence work, the workplace, and the interactions among um, workers. And so this is and and again this is um, this is more more of a, a from a personal religion standpoint, not necessarily an institution standpoint. Well, that's a good point. I mean, uh, that's part of the equation, but not the whole equation. Mm. So. Um, definitely people bring religion to work with them. So some mm -hmm. people see work as a spiritual calling. Um, I guess I would say I'm one of those people, right? That <laughs> there was something about my experience at a young age that made me realize that masculinity and sexuality and, you know, these things are something that I had to contribute to in some way. Um, uh, but also other people find that at work, not necessarily meaning to find that at work. So when you're a nurse and you're around death and you're around families and changes and, people's religious and spiritual beliefs, um, it's going to challenge you in some way. It's going to make you maybe think about your work in religious and spiritual ways that maybe you hadn't um, prior to um, that interaction. Um, and then there's, like I said, the occupations themselves are religious. So nursing has a great degree of religion and spirituality that's part of that occupation. Um, 
and even more interesting occupations such as German journalism or being a university professor, which are like sort of quintessential enlightenment professions, right? Mm -hmm. These would not be the places you would think religion and spirituality exists, right? It was, it's sort of the opposite. They would say truth is not religious. So, you know, we are, these sort of people are not religious, but that's not true. We're, a lot of research is sort of um, showing how these professions themselves are actually very religious and very spiritual and motivate people in religious and spiritual ways. And so how, so I guess I'm wondering what, I'm wondering, how do you, how do you conduct your research? Uh, how do you, how do you research uh, religion and spirituality within the workplace? I mean, considering, considering that some people don't consider themselves religious, some people don't think about that. Uh, and especially when you have the whole, you have this, this whole rhetoric of, well, you know, your workplace, your, your religion and your workplace are the, are different. That's, you know, that's what we're, we go to church on Sundays and we go to, we go to work every other day. So how, how do you research this? I guess, how do you interview people about this? Well, one, you ask people about their religious and spiritual commitments and what that means for them and, and how that plays out for them at work. It, that sort of gets at um, what I said earlier about people bringing religion and spirituality with them to work. Um, so you can do that through interviews. Um, also by understanding inter through interviews, you can understand the occupational pressures or the workplace cultures that support um, religious or spiritual activity. Um, but one of the most exciting things I think about the everyday religion framework is um, something that they call auto-driven uh, data collection. And what that means is basically is that your participants themselves are collecting their own data. So um, in my study, the, the people I'll be interviewing will actually be recording audio diaries for about five to six minutes um, during the weekday for about three weeks. So I will collect data. Um, that, a lot of that data then I'll be able to analyze and make sense of how people on a daily basis talk and think about work and inequality and religion and spirituality. Um, so they'll, they'll have a list of sort of guiding questions that they can refer to and think about. Um, but really it's just sort of talking about, you know, what happened today and how did you feel about today? Or what was, was there anything that was sort of different or off-putting or challenging? How'd you overcome that? So um, in a lot of ways, we're going to get these stories out of um, in unexpected ways, right? Not sort of the researcher saying, oh, I'm looking for this type of inequality in this way and see how people feel about it and then survey it. <laughs> you right. know, it's it's more sort of like we know these things exist. We know inequality exists in these ways. And we know that religion and spirituality are fundamental to your to your identity. Um, so how do those things sort of intersect with each other? So. I, I won't be interviewing people who don't identify as religious or spiritual. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> Definitely. All right. Well, um, so I just wanted to also point out we have another host in our studio tonight, and it is Lillian. Hi there. Yes. So Lily is going to be joining us very soon as a new host, and she has a question for you, Andres. Yeah. And so I was wondering about your research and its impact on the community and um, how you feel about reaching out to um, the community at large versus um, creating research for intellectuals. Mm -hmm. And how do you propose or see your research impacting the community at large in the future? That's a good question. Thank you. <laughs> um, 
So I, I think as this world gets more and more complicated <laughs> and people have less and less of a tolerance with institutions and old ways of doing things, um, uh, people find new ways of making sense of their, of their marriages, of their friendships, of their education, of their romances, what have you. Um, and, and I think this is our, these are fundamentally spiritual questions. Um, when we see major cities like San Francisco um, who are so gentrified that the entire city itself is changing, we have to ask ourselves spiritual questions. So when we see um, the Dakota pipeline um, going through and native lands and waters being destroyed and taken from them, um, we have to ask spiritual questions about what's yeah. happening in our world. <laughs> and so I feel that a big part of that, uh, a big part of the problem is that religion has hijacked spirituality from us and has not allowed the two to exist together and to be made sense of together and to be challenged together. So I hope that my my work and research will will bring about a new language um, to be able to do that so that I can speak as a religious and spiritual person or someone with religious and spiritual experience that is that that's an authority that that's real that that matters you know and that it's not um, and that it's not controlled by or limited to the Catholic Church or a certain religious group you know so no one has to tell you how to practice your religion or how to be spiritual exactly and i think we're doing that already it's mm -hmm. it's not a it, this isn't a new thing um there we just don't have a lot of knowledge of how it affects things and how it interacts with things um so i i definitely think new language new understanding of of religion and spirituality besides it just being something that crazy people do to hurt other people <laughs> right because it's sort of how we think of religion especially um in this country uh, but also at the same time there are a lot of work there's a lot of talk about workplace spirituality so there's a lot of um corporations that are putting a lot of energy and time into understanding spirituality itself at the workplace and how how to stimulate that and how to make workers feel more connected with their work. Um, and they're not connected with scholars who really understand how religion and spirituality works. So there's definitely a, a divide between um, those two that I hope that my work might be able to speak to actual corporations and people interested in workplace spirituality. Um, at the same time, there's also a... Um, a gay Christian network, for example, which is a group of um, wonderful uh, activists and scholars and pastors and religious lay people who are gathering to share knowledge and information and resources and um, to really sort of um, take back their spaces in religious institutions. So I feel that um, my work can speak to both of those communities in, in, in very different ways, but meaningful ways. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the question, Lily. And I guess I, that leads right into my next question, which is, which you kind of already touched on, but the future for you, what is, what holds after your PhD is complete? Well, I hope to be a professor <laughs> <laughs> um, at a, at a four-year university. However, um, it's a very challenging market, so mm -hmm. uh, we'll see where where I fit. But I also have a, a great deal of research skills um, that I've been working on, like I said, when I started at UMKC, and I've continued to develop that throughout my um, years of graduate education. So I'm open to, you know, private industry jobs and 
and other ways that might feed me. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, so we're, we're, uh, coming to the end of our interview, and it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Definitely. And we have two traditions that we have on inspiration dissemination. And the first is that we ask you to give a piece of advice, not necessarily advice uh, for me or for Kristen, uh, but it's rather advice maybe for yourself five years ago or someone who you see uh, identifying uh, with your situation. What kind of advice would you give them, uh, I guess, to to live a happy life or to or to go in the direction that they want to go or to get into grad school? How what kind of advice would you give them? I know it's kind of broad. (laughs) No, definitely. Well, so I decided that instead of giving advice that I just wanted to read a quote um, because it's a very long journey. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I, I definitely would say that you have to be true to yourself. And in, 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 as my advisor, Dr. Maldonado says, um, to follow your questions. I think those are things that I always remind myself of. But um, this quote by the infamous Martha Graham, um, it's been a very important quote for me and my academic family, I call as a group of people through my journey that we've gathered to support each other. Um, So I think this quote kind of sums it up. It goes, there is a vitality, a life force, an energy, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there is only one of you in all of time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and it'll be lost. The world will not have it. It is not your business to determine how good it is, nor how valuable, nor how it compares with other expressions. It is your business to keep it yours clearly and directly, to keep the channel open. You do not even have to believe in yourself or your work. You have to keep yourself open and aware to the urges that motivate you. Keep the channel open. No artist is pleased. There is no satisfaction whatever at any time. There is only a queer, divine dissatisfaction, a blessed unrest that keeps us marching and makes us more alive than the others. That's beautiful. I like that. That definitely speaks to me, too, as an academic. (laughs) I like it very much. And so the second one, of course, is that we ask for you to provide a song and for you to tell us uh, why and what it is. And uh, we'll play that as your, your final your final gift to the airwaves tonight. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, the song that I chose um, is by the band Gossip. And I chose this because, one, uh, they started in the Northwest in Olympia, Washington. Um, they're queer. <laughs> um, and the song, uh, well, the song is Dancy. And mm-hmm. also because um, I think it really reflects um, modern culture. I think it it really encapsulates how young people are making things theirs and are finding new translation and new salvation and new identity. Um, And so I thought it was sort of perfect to um, end the discussion. Great. Thanks again, Andres, for for joining us tonight on Inspiration Dissemination. And uh, we will be back again next week. Uh, We are on every Sunday at 7 p.m. And this is Pop Goes the World by Gossip from the album Music for Men. Here it is.
KBVR Corvallis.